Matthew chapter 5, uh, we are continuing to take some time to sit with the teaching of Jesus, to hear what not only what he was all about, uh, but what he calls us to be all about. And uh, so we began last week studying together the, what is called the Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew chapters 5 uh, to 7, and we're going to continue uh, with that this week. I'm going to start with a verse we read last week, verse 16, and uh, then read through verse 28, and then I'll jump to a verse at the end of the chapter and read that. Matthew 5, verse 16. Hear now the word of God. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this verse 48 at the end of the chapter. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we come to some words tonight that are intimidating. The call of Jesus here on his followers, on us, those of us who believe in Jesus, are high. They are strong. Uh, they are intense. And we sometimes struggle to understand, and we certainly struggle to obey. So... Would you give us clarity now by the, by the work of your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to understand? And more than that, would you give us power by your Holy Spirit to walk in the way to which Jesus calls us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know, some of you might have seen uh, my daughter, Georgia May, um, and she has a head full of blonde curls. And so uh, to go around the world with Georgia May is to invite a question that we get all the time, everywhere we go, uh, where did she get those curls? And for, for a time there, she would very quickly respond, my Grammy gave them to me. <laughs> because she did. Uh, Georgia gets her curls because of her genetic connection to my mom and my sisters who have headfuls of blonde curls. And so she gets those. She, she has learned in her life what it means to bear a family resemblance. The Christian life is a life of learning what it means to bear a family resemblance. Have you noticed the way Jesus talks about God in this chapter? I mean, he does it throughout this teaching and throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He calls God 
your Father who is in heaven. And this is a thread that that connects this teaching, and it connects the teaching of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Matthew, such that we could describe Jesus' teaching as an endeavor in which he teaches us, he instructs us on what it means to belong to God as our Father who is in heaven. What it means to bear a family resemblance in connection to God. So, verse 16. Jesus says that the goal of the life of of a disciple, a follower of Jesus, the community of disciples, the church, the goal of that community is to do what? It is to draw attention to the Father who is in heaven. How do you do that? Verse 48 Be perfect as your Father who is in heaven. Bear the family resemblance. The way to draw attention to God is to look like Him. Now, how do we do that? Well, that's the teaching that exists between these two verses, verse 16 and verse 48. And so we're going to look at the first part of that teaching tonight. We'll look at the second part uh, next week. And as we look at Jesus' instruction here uh, in these verses, I want us to see that he establishes two relationships for us that lead us towards bearing the family resemblance, bearing the mark that we belong to the Father who is in heaven. And he establishes a relationship between us and the family rules, and he establishes a relationship between us and the family story. So family rules and family story. First of all, let's look at our connection to the family rules. One thing that is clear in this teaching is that Jesus wants his disciples, uh, back then and now, to understand his and our relationship to the law in the Old Testament. And so the law in the Old Testament uh, existed to, in, to teach God's people how they were to live in the world. And it can be summarized by two commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is how God wanted his people to live in the world, his people Israel from the Old Testament. And Jesus upholds that intention. He upholds that design for living. He wants us to value the instructions that God had given to his people. So verses 17 and 18, he he communicates the cosmic significance of the law, right? Not one little part, not one little iota of the law will disappear It will not disappear. It is more solid than heaven and earth itself. It will be accomplished. Heaven and earth would pass away before God would accomplish. Just even the tiniest parts. Significant. And then, verse 19, as a result of that, the significance of the law, Jesus sets up a contrast between people who are apathetic towards the law and they're able to, they want to relax it, and those who are passionate about God's law. And Jesus says those people will be great in the kingdom of heaven. And then following from that, verse 20, Jesus creates a competition. He creates a competition between his followers, his disciples, and these groups called, this group's called the Pharisees and the scribes. And these two groups of people were, their life 
was all about understanding and following God's law with as much precision as they could get. And they developed all of these ways and techniques to help them follow the law with exactness. And Jesus says to his disciples, I want your righteousness, your rightness in the sight of God to be more than that. I want more than that for my disciples. And this phrase Enter the kingdom of heaven. He says your righteousness must surpass them to enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't mean to go to heaven when you die. It means to live under God's rule. So if you are going to live under God's rule, if you are going to represent him, your your righteousness has to be more than these very intense religious ethical people. Jesus calls his followers. He calls us to a life of rigorous ethics, as defined by God. So that if you follow the rest of the teaching in this chapter, you'll see that Jesus applies God's design not only to our actions, but to our motivations. Not just what we do, but what we want. That's how deep the ethics go. He intensifies the fidelity in marriage, the integrity in other human relationships that the Old Testament teaches. He takes that teaching and he makes it more intense, deeper, stronger. And then he takes the call to love. And he extends it not only to friendly neighbors, but to people who want to do you harm. That's how far God's commandment to love It goes to people who want to do you harm. Rigorous, deep, ethical life. That's what Jesus calls his disciples to. I want you to see a connection between that and our place in time. You know, a lot of uh, particularly religious conservative types of people, they look at our culture and they say it's an amoral culture. Right? It's all these old school morals that we used to hold, they've gone away and people don't care about morality anymore. But that's not true. Go to Earth Fair on Appalachia Parkway and tell me we live in an amoral culture. You understand we have a movement of people in our city and in cities around our country who want to sit down at their table and know that they are participating in something morally good. They want rigorous, ethical lives. So the distinction between Christianity and and the culture around it is not a desire for ethics, not a desire for morality. It's who who gets to define that morality. And Jesus claims that role for himself and for his teaching and application of God's design for life. He is the one who gets to define this rigorous, ethical life. And the question for those of us who are identified with Jesus, those of us who would call ourselves Christian, is do we share Jesus' passion for good? Do we share his passion for deep morality? Do we share his passion for a life that is integrated 
in an ethically good way? Do we long to live according to God's design? Now, I know that feels impossible, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But do you at least want it? Do you at least long for the good in the way that Jesus teaches here? We belong to a tradition of churches that use the word grace a lot. And I'm really glad that we do. Uh, But we believe strongly in the depth of our brokenness because of sin. And that we cannot fix ourselves. We cannot repair our world apart from God's gracious intervention in the world. And that is true. And I love that message. But please understand. Grace does not mean less obedience. Grace means deeper obedience. If Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's grace, which he is, he calls us uh, not to just a surface level obedience to God's design, but to a deep, powerful, rigorous commitment to God's design for our lives. Do you share that commitment as a follower of Jesus? Now that creates problems for us, doesn't it? (laughs) It creates problems because uh, we know ourselves, right? We know uh, that that word perfect there in verse 48 does not describe us, right? It doesn't describe me, maybe it does you, but it does not describe us, right? This excessive righteousness that Jesus talks about, we know how far we are away from that. Right? Do you know that? Can you feel that? Can you feel that tension to hear that, that Jesus has called you to this depth of morality? And can you feel your failure to reach it? Your failure to express it? So what do we do? If our relationship to the rules of the family are part of our resemblance of the family, what do we do with this problem? Well, we need to see that Jesus not only connects us to the family rules, but he connects us to the family story as well. The whole teaching here rests on verse 17. In chapter 5, verse 17. And Jesus said, look at it again with me. Let's read it again. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. With that word fulfill in that verse, Jesus revealed a narrative relationship between himself and the Old Testament. A a story relationship between himself and the law of the Old Testament. He says, the law and me, we we both have roles in the same drama. And... And what happens here and this relationship that he creates is is acknowledging that the law establishes a tension that Jesus resolves. Right? Great stories create tension and then deal with that tension. And that's what Jesus does is he looks to the story of Israel in the Old Testament and says that the law has created a tension that he fulfills. That he resolves. Because the law reveals God's desire for his people, his design for his people. But it also reveals their inability 
to live according to it in the world. And notice that Jesus doesn't just say he fulfills the law, he also says he fulfills the prophets as well. And the prophets, their job was to take God's law and to take the life of God's people and say, see how those don't mesh. They don't fit. They contradict. There is a tension there. And then the prophets would say, God is going to deal with that contradiction. He is going to deal with that tension. And he's going to deal with that tension in a unique individual. A king. A king descended from David. And this individual would take on himself the demands of God's law and lead God's people into new, deeper righteousness and faithfulness. This leader would create a situation where God's people would be said to have not just external surface obedience, but they would be said to have new hearts, is what the prophet Ezekiel says. They would be said to have God's law written on their hearts, as the prophet Jeremiah says. And Jesus, as he looks at that story and that expectation, that one who would create the possibility of profound transformation in a group of people so that they would live according to God's design, Jesus looks at that and says, that's me. I am the one who came to take the weight of the law on myself, including its judgment and its punishment. I am the one who has come to create a new people of Jew and Gentile who will live in a new righteousness, into a new and deeper faithfulness. He is saying, I am the one who has come to finish the story to deal with the contradiction, to resolve the tension. And that is the work that Jesus began in his life and his death and his resurrection. That is the work that he continues right now by his spirit in his people. And it is a work that he will continue and finish in the future. So to deal with this problem of our relationship to Jesus' rigorous ethical demands. We have to know where we are in the story. We have to understand that the I of verse 17 comes before the you in verse 20. So I have come to fulfill all the law's demands so that, verse 20, your righteousness will exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And we have to understand that, that Jesus, he began that work in his life, his death, his resurrection. He continues it, even now, by the work of his Holy Spirit. And he will one day complete it in us, in you, if you are in him by faith. As a result of that, if we get that story, if we understand where we are in that story, that no, we are not perfect... But we will be, we are being made perfect, righteous. Then we can hear Jesus' ethical call. And we can be challenged, yes, but not crushed. 
we can hear his moral demands for his people and we can hear them with hope and not despair. We can hear Jesus' call to us and we can respond with effort but not exhaustion. If we understand how through him we are related to this story. We are called to work as Christians. But the moral work of a Christian is restful effort. Some of you know that. Some of you know that feeling of restful effort. Uh, We have uh, several people in our congregation who are very handy that love to do house projects and things like that. And, And maybe you have something in your life that you know that it takes effort, but that effort is invigorating. It's life giving, it is renewing. Tom Lindley was taking me around his house and was showing me all the projects that he has done in in his house and talking about how he loves to do that. And he said, that's my therapy. (laughs) That effort is renewing. It's invigorating. That is the kind of effort that we are called to as Christians. It is not a crushing effort. It is a renewing effort because it is the work that Jesus does for us, in us, and through us. It is his work first that he then engages us in when we trust in him, when we hear this story, when we receive it, when we rest in what he has done. Jesus calls us to effort. He calls us to work. But he entered the story of his people, the story of Israel. He entered their failure. He entered our failure so that he could empower us for that work, for that effort, and so that that work would fill us with life instead of death. That's how we bear the family resemblance. If you try to bear a family resemblance with God just by keeping a set of rules, it will produce one of two things. It will produce cynicism, You will try and fail and say, that's impossible. I can't do it. No one can. Or it will produce pretension. That you'll create a surface level of obedience. That, hey, if I keep these three things that are manageable, then I am righteous in the way that Jesus intended me to be righteous. Jesus calls us out of our cynicism and out of our pretension into a restful effort because of the work that he has done in his life, his death, his resurrection that he does even now by his spirit in us. We can bear the family resemblance not because of a set of rules, but because Jesus has entered the story and has has empowered us to obedience. My great-grandfather uh, was a phenomenal musician. He um, uh, won all sorts of awards. He was a fiddle player and played in a lot of like bluegrass and country bands and uh, won awards all over the state of Florida. Uh, grew up in central Florida and uh, was, was a great musician. He was also a very broken man. 
who uh, struggled uh, with alcoholism uh, to the point uh, that he tried to harm himself and his family. And so my granddad uh, grew up in a very bad family situation. The family story may have looked good on the surface, but it was profoundly broken inside. And so my grandpa grew up with a heritage of, of sin and of brokenness as far from righteousness and perfection as you could imagine. But God's grace intervened through Jesus. And God, through the gospel, gave my grandfather a new family story. He rescued him through Jesus Christ. And he was a very different man than his father. Because God gave him a new heritage. A new family story. I don't know your background tonight. Maybe you have come from a great family. And you have a great family story. The scripture reveals that all of our family stories fail to create what we want them to. And so God in his son... Jesus Christ gives us a new family story. He gives us a new DNA so that we can reveal his glory to the world by looking like him.